The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we're going to, looks like we're going to combine the fourth week of the intro class with our regular Tuesday evening open set. I don't know if people who are in the class realize, but there's always a Tuesday evening sit from 7.30 to 9. And we'll cover a little bit of the content for week four, which is being more curious about what it, whatever it is that arises to obscure the mind. And actually, instead of having a put-upon attitude like when we have body pain or we have an agitated mind, we're worrying about something or some content from the day keeps bubbling up into consciousness, we can have this attitude like it's in the way of my meditation. Or I need to, and it actually can feel that way. We push it aside, it comes back. It's a little bit like a mosquito, you know, we kind of brush it away and then there again and we kind of move it away and then it's there again. And instead, the basic move and awareness practice is to, um, allow there to arise an authentic interest. And uh, you'll know the difference between some kind of controlling move and an attitude that really has that purity of real interest. The mind is actually interested in what is obscuring or agitating the mind. And it will have a very particular feeling like this is wholesome. And, it's, and it will stand out because even though there might be a mosquito or a disturbing thought, the interest in it is really beautiful. The disturbance might be unpleasant, disturbing, whatever. But the attitude about it, the interest in it, the willingness to be close, and basically what we're you know, because we have this pointing out instruction from the Buddha, what we're realizing over and over again, literally tens of thousands of times over the course of our practice, is that that mosquito, that disturbing thing, whether it's body pain or painful memory or the mind revisiting some place in our life where there's conflict, the the basic realization or insight is that that mosquito is nature. It's just nature. It's not personal that there's a mosquito, that there's this disturbing memory or disturbing content coming up or this disturbing knee pain or agitating sound in the room. We, big, big habit, we personalize it. It feels like a personal attack. Doesn't a mosquito in your tent when you're camping? It can feel so personal. But we know, I mean, intellectually we know, it's, there's absolutely not, nothing personal about that mosquito buzzing around us or that pain in the knee or that disturbing thought. There's nothing personal about it. And when we are authentically interested in it, then we're coming from that place. The mind is operating from that place that this is nature. It's not self. It's not personal. And this is the essence of working with the disturbances that arise, not just in our meditation practice, but in daily life. 
So I passed out this handout. You can pick one up at the end if you haven't gotten it. But it's it's just a simple acronym that teachers and other people have been using for decades now to help us when we're working with disturbances of any kind, physical or mental, internally or external disturbances. Recognize, so that honest recognition of what's being known and that it is being known. Oh, this is being known. Pain in the knees being known. Difficult memories being known. Just acknowledging it. And literally, experiment. Sometimes, especially when it's strong and the tendency is to react to it, name it. Oh, judging mind is being known. Aching knee is being known. And when you name it, name it in a very equanimous, non-charged way. You're just stating the fact. This experience is being known. And you can use that phrase. If you don't immediately recognize what it is that's being known in terms of a word, then just use the word this. This experience of body or this experience of the mind is being known now. Can this be okay? And that's a real question. I don't know if it's okay, but can it be okay? Let's see. So that's the R in RAIN, the acronym recognize, then accepting it. So instead of reacting to it, we're seeing if we can soften with it or trust it. And then that buys some time, right? It allows there to be more of a continuity of awareness, mindfulness. And then to even sustain that awareness, mindfulness, a little longer interest. So those are the next two letters. Accept, that's the A. Interest is the I. The acceptance and the interest are two skillful means to support the continuity of awareness. So something's arising and we recognize it. And then to sustain that simple presence, that non-judging presence, we work with acceptance and interest. Acceptance is the softening, the receptive quality. Interest is the assertive quality. We need both. We're not some like one over the other. We a dance between softening, receiving, allowing, and interest. It's like we're not content with just the surface. We really want to connect, really want to feel, really want to see deeply what this is. And then end isn't something we do necessarily. It's something that arises when we're doing the first three, recognizing, accepting, and interested. Then we have moments of directly realizing non-attachment. And that's what I said earlier, where we see it's not personal. It's nature, right? That, Like that mosquito, whether it's a disturbing memory or a disturbing sound or pain in the body. It's not personal. I don't need to personally react. Instead, there's the possibility of non-attachment, non-identification, non-clinging. This is the N in RAIN. Recognize, accept, interest. Don't fake non-attachment. Notice it when it arises. Notice that experience when the heart or the mind isn't clinging, isn't struggling, isn't identified. It's really radically intimate, but not getting pushed around by the experience in the moment. So let's sit for about 30 minutes or so. And I'll give a few instructions, but not so many this week as we've been practicing for a while together.
Do what you can to stabilize your sitting posture. There's a sense of comfort and uprightness. Appreciate the silence. And appreciate, if you can, the comfort and stability of the sitting posture. Appreciating the basic goodness of the heart. I care about this life, this body and mind. Care enough to be intimate, close to the experience of the body sitting. Care enough to be close to the experience of the breath moving in the body. To feel the breath coming in just as it is. To feel the sensations of the breath going out just as it is. Breathing in, sensitive to the whole body, just as it is. Each time while breathing out, sensitive to the whole body, just as it is. And over time, begin to realize the calm that arises with the whole body an all-inclusive awareness of body and mind. With each inhalation, with each exhalation. And even when distraction arises, recognize and accept, include, be interested.
Basically, we're learning how to connect and sustain this simple but very clear, very honest recognition of how it is in the body and mind. So we'll continue in silence now.
So, uh, you guys feel free to leave if you want. We're going to check in about practice. You're more than welcome to stay, but if you want to continue with your sits, yeah. So, as I've been saying the last couple of weeks, it's nice to have people share a little bit about what you're noticing, questions that arise from your practice. And in particular, this week, week four, we, as I mentioned, we often take a closer look at what it, what is it that arises to disturb the mind. In a way, that's not a bad frame for the whole practice. There's a great simple meditation instruction that comes from this British Buddhist monk. His name is Ajahn Amaro. He was the, one of the first abbots of a well-known monastery in California. Now he's back at a monastery as the abbot in um, England, at Amaravati, it's called. But anyway, Ajahn Amaro's, and it just comes out of the Thai forest tradition, this basic instruction for awareness practice, goes something like, let the mind rest in the natural ease of the body. Okay. So awareness rests in the natural ease of the body. And then the second instruction is, let the mind rest. Notice the natural ease of the mind. So first we attune to the natural ease of the body. Then we attune to the natural ease of the mind. And then the third instruction is, now stay awake to whatever arises to disturb that natural ease. And it's interesting how those three instructions pretty much sum up a lot of the Buddhist teachings. You know, he taught a lot about how to find, how to cultivate a real ease of the body and mind. We call it samadhi or concentration, where the mind feels really stable, clear, sense of wholeness. So that samadhi, that evenness of mind, that balance of mind, stability of mind, then from that place we observe what is it that arises to disturb that ease. It's not so easy to notice the disturbances from a place of disturbance. Right? So if we're like in one of those discombobulated states, a lot of difficult experience pushing us around during the day, and we remember, oh yeah, notice what's irritating the mind, or notice what's destabilizing the mind, we might not notice too much. But if we're in a pretty balanced, stable, clear place, we notice pretty quickly if a disturbing memory arises and we start to get sucked in and proliferate around it, it stands out. Because in contrast to the relative evenness, equanimity, peacefulness of the mind, getting all worked up about something, we can see, oh yeah, there's that. That's a disturbance. And then we can, that's, you know, a place of practice then. Oh, well, can the mind be aware of that activity of being disturbed? Can it be, can it recognize it for what it is? Can it accept it? Can it be interested in it? Can it at least in moments realize a non-attachment so that the disturbance, that reactive pattern, is seen as nature, not self. So, let's hear from each other. 
don't know, maybe because the fan isn't on tonight, we might not need the mic. Let's try it without the mic. But it'd be nice just to hear, like tonight and also during the last couple of weeks, what experience do you remember of a disturbance arising? And this could be in a formal sit or just in general. And then think about how you relate it to the disturbance. What disturbed the ease of the body and mind? What was it? How did the mind recognize it? In the way that the mind recognized it, did it help or make things worse? And of course, any questions that you have about the practice or comments about your practice or what comes to mind? What have you been learning? <clears throat> yeah. So the interest, because a lot of times we, and I even said this, you know, that the acceptance is more the um, receptive quality and the interest is more of an assertive quality. But even though it's an assertive quality, I mean, everything in the practice has a natural feel to it, right? So it's not so much mark trying to figure out what's going on. That's not really the experience of interest. It's more like creating a space for whatever is going on to present itself, to reveal itself. Oh, oh. So whatever it is, whether it's a disturbing thought or an emotion or a physical experience or some external experience of sound, we're creating the space for it to present itself. And it's like a, it needs to be a hands-off space. So a lot of the mind, <clears throat> you know, we, we want to define it, we want to analyze it. But that experience itself needs to be accepted and we need to be interested in that proliferation, that tendency to want to analyze or figure it out. And the easiest way to do that is to notice what it feels like. Oh, that tendency to think, it feels like this. So like, what's the underlying charge? It's never really about the content, what you're actually thinking about. But the question is, what's the underlying charge behind or underneath that thinking or that tendency to think? Is it a wanting to get something? Is it a wanting to push something away? Is it just a kind of a bubbly, agitated restlessness? But what is it? And so something like, oh, that underlying feeling feels like this. Or just simply, it feels like this. It feels like this. So that interest isn't cognitive, it isn't analytic. It's really the interest is that letting the moment reveal itself. The mind-body in and of itself. And it... In, in, it's really not about the conceptual meaning or what we tell ourselves is going on. That might happen just because of the habit, but it's more the immediate direct experience. So even though it's not just a body experience, it can be helpful to say, what does this feel like in the body? Just as a way of dropping out of the mind. What does this feel like now in the body? Does this, whatever, you know, is agitating the mind, some drama. But what is the experience in the body? Can this be felt in the body? So those body-based questions can help break that cycle of needing, thinking that we need to think about it, 
or need to figure it out on that conceptual level. What is this beyond the meaning the mind wants to bring to it? You know, the story the mind wants to tell about this. What is this not, you know, not dependent on the story the mind wants to tell? What is this in the body? What is this here and now? Like right now, we all have, there's a mood, everybody here who has a mind, there's a mood or an attitude or a residual quality from the day, like if it was a really great day, there will be a residual quality of that or a difficult day. So how is that? So you don't need to have words to know how it is. Right? Because the way it is is, it's this. This is the way the mind, heart, body is right now, right? We don't need words. We don't need to analyze it or compare it to another time when it was different. But it's, you know, it doesn't seem like we're doing enough when we notice it's like this now. So part of the practice is understanding that that's quite potent precisely because the connection isn't being mediated by our thoughts about it or our language. It's more direct and immediate. But it will always initially seem lacking. That it would, I'd be clearer if I told myself the way it is. But we're learning to be con- content or appreciate a more simple, direct connection or knowing than what we tell ourselves using language is happening. And sometimes, you know, we just have to keep acknowledging that tendency to think, because it has a lot of momentum, especially at times in our mind. And then, so what's underneath this tendency to think? Is it a restless? Is it a fear? Is it aversion? Is it greed, wanting to make something happen? What is it? Can it be felt? Can it be accepted? You know, so recognize, accept, let it reveal itself, that interest. Can there be this relationship of non-attachment with that underlying? In a way, it's like an existential uneasiness, or some somebody once called it an existential itch. That's everybody lives with. But we tend not, we're too busy on the sort of secondary expressions of that existential uneasiness and not getting back to the more fundamental uneasiness of the heart. And that's where real learning is, if we can come back to that place more often. Thanks, Andy. Other thoughts about your practice? Questions you might have? Things you feel like you've been learning? challenging places you keep seem seem to keep returning to. Right. Like that's such a powerful insight that we get most of us in little doses it grows, strengthens over the years of practice, that we can let our life be unformed. Like something's gonna happen, as you shared with us about surgery. And uh of course, the conditioned mind, the thinking mind, it wants a story. It wants a compelling story about 
how this is going to turn out. But the fact is we don't know. It's unformed. The future isn't yet, <laughs> you know. There's literally no future somewhere. Just like there's literally no past. Where would it be? The past is literally slipping away, disappearing, passing away. And the future has not yet arisen. So part of what we're doing when we learn to be mindful, learn to be present to the conditions here and now, is we're accepting, we're learning to see clearly, accept, relax with things being unformed, like the future is unformed. All that is, is this. right? And then if I have a thought, no, but I have my house at seven blocks over there, and I have my past, but those are thoughts here and now. Even the thought of my house, it's a thought here, an image here in my mind or a thought about my past, or a thought about surgery next week. And so we're learning like, well, this moment is, you know, it's this. And uh, we're noticing the difference between complicating this moment with thoughts about the past, right? And thoughts about the future, and thoughts about me, and thoughts about you, and thoughts about what I like, and thoughts about what I don't like. And when we're aware that we realize it's really stressful, to complicate the present moment, to sort of fill it up and create a sense of past and future and me and you and good and bad. We can do it. We do it all the time. But when we notice what that's like, we well, that complication that all that thinking creates is stressful. And when we let the present moment be really simple, so we're not constructing here in the present moment an idea here in the present moment about the future, or an idea here in the present moment about the past, about me, about you, about what's good, about what's bad, when we don't do that, then the present moment gets really simple and beautiful. And there's a sense of non-fragmentation or wholeness or peacefulness. And this isn't something the mind manufactures, it's something the mind realizes. When it's not fragmenting the present moment, with thoughts about the future, past. It's like it's creating these dimensions that have the appearance of existing, right? The future, when I think about it, appears to exist, like it's actually there. And then when I think about the past, it seems like the past really exists somewhere when I think about it. Or my house, and the cat in my house. But those are thoughts here, now. And then, oh, that's, oh, that's really simple. You know, it's like like the space of this room is simple. So this is such a great insight to realize this option that we don't need to complicate the present moment. So when we're not complicating the moment, we learn to appreciate the beauty of that simplicity, the peacefulness of that simplicity. And when we do complicate the present moment, we take the opportunity to learn how stressful that is. Because it's really valuable to see the stress involved when we have created these dimensions through our thinking as if the present moment is more complicated, like Mark actually has a future, actually has a past, 
actually has these things that it doesn't want, he doesn't want, things that he does want. And I'm attached to my ideas, my thoughts of the future. I cling, I grasp, I'm identified with my thoughts of the past, the thoughts of what I really want to happen, the thoughts of what I don't want to happen. So that's a lot of stress. And all of a sudden, that world that I construct here in the present moment is heavy. It's hard to bear. You know, we feel like we need a vacation or coffee or drink. You know, it's like we can't just handle it. So then that just adds more ripples. Then I got to go out and buy chocolate like I did today. You know, it's like snow's coming down, but, you know, I need something sweet. Yeah, so we have our excuses. You know, I, I needed to buy groceries, so. It's just, you know, it's all these reverberations and then we deal with the repercussions of doing whatever we do to entertain the mind or to try to take care of the mind in not so efficient ways. Other thoughts about your practice that you'd like to share with the group? What have you been learning? It's felt challenging. It's like an immersion process. And, you know, we're all different, the ways our minds work. So everyone's got to find their own way to immerse themselves. But, like, we're really, we have mostly, you know, depending on how susceptible we are to the practice, we're pretty, we're pretty impenetrable. So we, we kind of need to just soak, hear the teachings over and over again, hang out with people who are interested in being more mindful in life, listening to talks, reading books, thinking about it. And we're kind of immersing ourselves in a more more of an, an awareness lifestyle, a mindfulness lifestyle. But it will soak in and it will begin to change just how the mind is so that the uh, habit, like new habits, the habit of being awake, the habits of being sensitive, the new values of like valuing calm, valuing tranquility, val- val- valuing being more gentle, more kind, as you know, in order to support the stability of mind, the stability of that clarity of mind. Because this value is that that's deepening is there's it's really a kind of humility. It's like there's something to learn. And that learning happens when the mind is stable and clear and interested and accepting. And the learning always has the flavor of freedom, the freedom of not grasping or the freedom of not being attached or the freedom of not getting pushed around by the pleasantness and unpleasantness of our life, the experiences in our life. That's, that's the, um, always the fruit of paying attention. We pay attention, and the more we pay attention, that's the three first three parts, to recognize what's happening, to accept it, to be interested in it. And then there's the fruit, which is moments of non-attachment. That's freedom. And we start, the mind starts to recognize, like the Buddha talks about that as a taste of freedom. And, and he says in the teachings, it's an unforgettable taste. When you have moments, of just normal moments in your life, whether it's a formal sit or informally in your day, of non-attachment, it's like 
the mind, it's hard to forget that possibility of not being tight. You know, like driving in traffic and realizing you're tight and then seeing it clearly, right? You're recognizing, you're accepting, you're interested in it. And then like most things, everything rather, it's impermanent, it passes away and you realize, I don't have to be tight in traffic. I don't have to identify with the anger or the irritation. Right? I don't, just because there's traffic doesn't mean I have to feed that pattern of being put off by the traffic. I can see it for what it is, not feed it, it passes away, then I realize being in traffic without a, without aversion, without having a fixed stance for or against it. It's just like this now. And that's true in all the little and big things that rock our world, you know, that push our buttons, throw us around, trigger reactivity. Yeah, and I always say that about the six-week class. You know, we're here for six weeks not to master mindfulness, this path of awakening, but we're really here to get enough of a taste to sense or to intuit that we're in it for the long haul. You know, not even a year or ten years, but, you know, decades, or just to open our mind, lifetimes. Like, why not? And the, the neat thing about this kind of path is there's something liberating about knowing we're on a path that actually delivers, meaning we become more skillful, more kind, more capable of of responding appropriately when things are really beautiful and responding skillfully and appropriately when things are really difficult. And so, even though in the tradition we have this aspiration of full and complete awakening, the mind, the heart, no longer bothered by greed, anger, and delusion, the fact that I feel I'm moving in that direction is for me, and I think for most people, really inspiring. I don't need a guarantee I'm going to get there this lifetime or in two years or 10,000 lifetimes. I'm just so grateful that I'm moving in the direction of more freedom, more skill, more kindness, and that, that the heart just really trusts the direction of the life, our lives, when we're cultivating mindfulness. It's like, how could, when we really see what it delivers, how could it not be to everyone's advantage? Little by little by little to become more continuously present, that clear, stable, non-judging, non-reactive presence. Can we imagine a situation that wouldn't be useful in our lives? Time for a little bit more, other Comments from your practice people have? Yeah, George. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if the mind that's spinning in doubt uh, and there's enough kind of integrity in that spinning, it will start to question the spinning itself, like doubt whether worrying about this is helpful, right? So there is a way that Within the process of doubting, 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 
the mind abandons more and more, kind of strips away more and more. Because one way or another, we have to challenge the notion whether we need to respond to the questions we ask, whether the questions that arise in our mind need an answer. It's like in terms of so much of our life, it's not really fair or appropriate to demand that we know, like the question could be, what should I do when I grow up? Or who should I spend the rest of my life with? Who should I take on as a spouse, partner? Or like you said, George, is this the right spiritual tradition for me? Will this deliver the, the sort of deepest fruits of spiritual practice digging in here? But maybe, uh, maybe the true answer is, I don't know. I don't know. And not, evo- not only I don't know, but it's just, it can't be known now. So, th- the antidote to doubt, surprisingly maybe, is not to try to find the answer to the question but to put the question aside and to realize it's like this now. So, for example, you know, just in my case, but you could just tune into some obvious sensation in your body. When I feel my hands on my thighs, and I really tune in to that contact, just the simple warmth of that touch and the the light pressure and the qualities I'm noticing from the you know, the qualities of the material of the pants that I'm wearing. See, when I'm present with the physical experience of touch, there's no doubt in my mind, you know, that this experience is like this. Doubt arises when I'm have this sense of being a person who wants to know what's going to happen or wants to know what I'm doing, whether I'm what I'm doing is skillful or not. So we can always ask questions that can't be known, but we can imagine they should be known. And then we try to answer them, but we're not certain. So then we pretend to be certain or we think about, well, how can I be certain? So we create our own little circle that we race around, race around, race around. But there's always the possibility of just dropping into the present moment. Like when we tune in to just sitting, there's a sense, I mentioned this earlier, there's a sense of completeness or wholeness just in being present. But it doesn't resolve like how much snow is going to fall tonight, whether our partner is going to shovel or whether we have to do it, you know, whose turn is it, whether it's fair that I have to live in Minnesota with all the snow. None of that gets resolved. But we can taste when we're really radically present that those questions, those unresolved things aren't an issue. They're not a personal issue. They fall away. So it isn't so much that you resolve what's not resolved. 
It's more that the mind realizes perhaps it's okay for things to remain unknown, undefined, unformed. So maybe you don't know. You never know whether this was the best place to practice or to learn meditation. But it is a place to learn whatever you're learning here, right? Or even like with things that seem maybe even more serious, like, was I supposed to marry this person? You know, spend my life with this person? Or is, is this the career? This is what I'm meant to do? Should I be living in Minnesota? I mean, maybe we don't know. Maybe it's like, well, if you live in Minnesota, then life's like this. If you live somewhere else, then life would be like that. Maybe it isn't about good or bad. Maybe it's like, when these choices are made, life is like this, when these other, and then the question, well, what choice should I make? Well, you know, maybe the question is, won't it be interesting to see what choices are made? Instead of, like that question, what should I do? We shouldn't assume that's the right question. Maybe the question is, it will be interesting to see what happens, what is done, what is chosen. Am I going to eat food when I go home tonight? Well, it'll be interesting to see, won't it? You know, will I get stuck or not? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that goes for us. But that's a different, you know, that's not our normal mode. So we're cultivating a taste for this simplicity and for things being unformed. And that's how we put aside doubt. We realize there's an option to needing to know, which is contentment with not knowing. And actually, not just I can bear with not knowing, but actually notice how freeing it is to not need to know. It's not that having a clear sense, sometimes we do have a clear intuitive sense, what's right or wrong, what to do, what not to do. But it's so liberating when we don't have clarity to be really okay with that. And then it's like, well, we'll see. We'll see what I do when I get home tonight. Is that that useful? It's a higher-end practice. I'm not saying it's easy. But what you can do to support that kind of practice is when there is doubt, just in an honest way, not in a judging way, notice it's stressful. To, to need to know is stressful. So that, that will sort of support, well, maybe I don't really need to know. I wonder what that would be like. And initially it might look really scary, but just lean into that, relax into the not knowing and see how that, like, see if it's actually really scary or really destructive, because it might not be. It might be actually liberating. But you're not, you know, the, the thing about just the, um, the sense that if I don't worry about this, if I don't plan this, then I'll just sit here. You see if that's actually true. Because, you know, this, this place of getting comfortable with not knowing, with things being unformed, there's no, um, stake or there's no attachment to the it being unformed. You're curious. You're kind of like on this, the mind. You're just keeping the mind in this 
really dynamic, neutral place. You're not against planning. You're just not attached to needing to plan. But not being attached, identified with the one who needs to plan doesn't mean you're attached or identified with the one who doesn't need to plan, right? So it's a, it's a neutral place. You're neither for nor against the planning. All that you're recognizing or training your mind to recognize is that being in need of planning, being attached to planning, being afraid of not planning is stressful. And then you're experimenting with dropping not the planning, but the attachment to planning, the identification with it. So if planning happens, you notice that planning's happening. If you seem to be gravitating toward this choice, you notice the mind's gravitating towards this choice. If you're really confused and you don't really have a clue what's skillful, you're noticing that. If you notice, if you sort of are stagnating on the couch, deer in headlights, not knowing what to do with your life, you're noticing that. So you're really intimate with, and you might find that choices get made just as efficiently, maybe even more efficiently, than when, on top of everything else, you're constructing a sense of somebody who's got to get their act together, somebody who's got to figure out. Because the processes, the tendencies of the mind to analyze and plan and choose, we're not suppressing them. That would be neurotic too. You know, stop planning. That's neurotic. So it's neither, yeah, you should be planning, nor you shouldn't be planning. It's just like, let planning be a natural activity that happens. Because it does happen, right? I mean, it's, it's not me who plans. It's just the force of habit to analyze, to plan, to judge, to choose, to second guess. So what we're doing is, in that process, we're adding this non-judging awareness to it. And by, in a sense, learning to take refuge in that non-judging awareness, then the planning process is less charged with self, a me who has to figure it out. And then instead, we're taking refuge in knowing that planning is happening. But we're not pathologizing planning or analyzing. We're not making it bad. It's just planning. It's just planning mind. Okay? Planning mind's happening. In the, you know, in a formal sit, we might go, okay, planning's happening, and also breathing in is happening. We might return to this. We might, like, in recognizing that planning's happening, another thought might be arising, which is something like, boy, I've been planning this for, you know, 30, 40 times today. Maybe this isn't the time to plan. Maybe I don't need to think this through one more time. But that's not even you doing that. That recognition that I've thought this, I've planned this already 20 or 30 times today, that arose naturally, and awareness, mindfulness is realizing, oh, now this is being known. First there was planning being known, and then there was a thought, this is a little crazy, I've been thinking about this all day long. Now that's being known, right? And so that naturally sort of pours cold water on the tendency to keep planning. You didn't do that, you didn't suppress the planning, it was the mind's own awareness that I've been through this too many times. I'm not really adding anything. Right? I'm just kind of poking myself. Let's just let that go. 
So this is what awareness, this wise attention does, is it, it starts to reflect back to the mind all its inefficient habits. Because it's like there's a mirror that's saying, hey, this is what's going on. This is how it is. And if we're not reflecting like that, if there's not the mirror-like reflecting going on, then the mind can kind of act out these habits, even though they're, they're not helping, they're a little neurotic or a lot neurotic, but there's no reflectiveness to notice that it's neurotic. So it's a really good point you make, because it does seem, when you hear about being mindful, we think initially it means as opposed to doing. But actually, mindfulness neither causes the body-mind to do things, nor represses the body-mind in doing things. Right? So we're cultivating. It seems like, you know, we, we train ourselves when we're sitting still, like the formal meditation time. But that's only because it's easier to learn what mindfulness is when we're not doing something with the body. But actually being mindful, that reflective knowing that it's like this now, it doesn't, you can do it, you can be reflectively aware it's like this now, doing anything. It's just easier to get some momentum in it when we're sitting still with no obvious responsibilities, except to just feel the body sitting or be aware of the breath coming in and going out. But we do it formally in our formal sit so that we have more likelihood to be doing it for the rest of our waking day. I mean, that's the idea, at least. Well, why don't we stretch our legs out and then we'll just sit for five minutes to end together. So stretch your legs out or stand for a few moments, release any tension that might have built up. And then we'll do a short sit at the end. And I'll introduce a little flavor of the loving kindness that we'll spend a little bit more time on next week. And whenever you feel ready, just find the chair or cushion to sit on. And just the sense of sitting right in the middle of your experience. Body relaxed. Feeling the uprightness of the body, the integrity of the posture. But in a way that is feeling comfortable and stable and relaxed. Let me take a couple minutes and allow things to become really simple. Sitting, the sensations of sitting are being known. The 
physicality of breathing is being felt, is being known. Hearing is being known. Is it safe now to Relax the heart and body to soften to trust that the experience of the body and mind is like this now. To experiment with trusting, being intimate, For a few minutes, just notice how this experience of being present with the body and mind now naturally has qualities of love, of compassion, this basic goodness, this basic goodness of being intimate and accepting. We care about this moment, these conditions, this heart and body, this mind. We care about things just as they are now. Care enough to be sensitive, undefended. Care enough to be interested and accepting. Care about all things, near and far, all beings, all the sensitive beings, all the loved ones, the creatures. May all beings be at ease. May all beings be at ease. May this heart, may all hearts be at ease. So for just another minute or so, just repeating a phrase like that a few more times, connect with the meaning of the words.
Now we get to see what happens next. <laughs> Do we actually get up and go outside? Or are you going to make a little sleeping spot here? <laughs> we have blankets in the closet. Thanks for braving it tonight, everyone. Hope you have a safe, safe trip home and hope to see you next Tuesday night for week five. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.